journey of becoming an Episcopal priest, um, of starting a nonprofit that then, you know, became a business, has become a business. Um, you know, getting a you know, getting married, getting divorced, now married to a Muslim. Hi, my name is Josh Chambers. Welcome to How Humans Change. Every episode, we speak with someone who's undergone some kind of change, and we get the backstory. You know, I was thinking about this episode after I spoke with Zane. I didn't know exactly what we would be getting into. I've been introduced via email, and it just seems a little funny that the last episode you heard, or the most recent episode, in How Humans Change was from Kent Dobson talking about leaving Christianity, but still finding God and pursuing God. Whereas Zane, the majority of his story is about looking for God and finding God in more traditional Christianity. And to that end, one of the most fascinating things about his story is he's an Episcopal priest and he's married to a Muslim. And faith is a, a topic we talk a lot about on this podcast. And I've not met anyone ever who is married in an interfaith context like that. And he talks about the effect it's had on his family, on him, on his wife, and it's just beautiful. Also, a couple notes here. Uh, there's a decent amount of profanity here in this uh, podcast episode, so if you've got kiddos in the car, this might not be a good one. And more importantly, for that reason, there is a really graphic scene of sexual violence uh, that Zane describes um, maybe halfway through, maybe earlier. So if that's a trigger for you, you might want to skip this episode. All right. If you've been listening for a while, if you're new to this, please give us a rating on your favorite podcast app and please subscribe. Go ahead and share it with your friends. Tell everybody. And if you know anybody who'd like to be on the show or you think should be on the show, please reach out at howhumanschange.com and just click contact. All right. Enjoy my conversation with Zane Wildman. You know how sometimes people say it's been one of those mornings? Yeah. But they're not actually serious about how it's been one of those mornings. This, this has literally been one of those mornings. <laughs> oh my gosh. All good, buddy. Ah. It's been one of those mornings for me, but I was I had my morning like pretty slotted, like chill and peaceful, and then my wife was like, Hey, I want you to come see the new office before we move everything into it. And I'm like, hey, you could have told me that last night. She's like, nope, I'm going to go buy stuff today, and I really want you to come see it. I'm like, dude, it's eight. All right, let's go now because I got to <laughs> Oh, man. Where, where, are you, uh, where are you calling me from, or where am I calling you at? You're in, you're in Austin? Okay, got it. Yeah, I was curious because you're um, – we'll get into this, but you're nonprofit, not in Austin, Texas. HQ is in Austin, Texas? Yeah, HQ's Austin, Texas. I mean, we have, we have two. So okay. Austin, Texas, and then my, my Hugh, Kenya. Okay, got it. Um, right on. Well, during the email introduction I got for you, um, it was effusive. He was like, this guy's amazing for these many reasons. But in the context of this podcast, he was talking about the change that you've been through. You started yeah. a nonprofit. You've been divorced. You almost the nonprofit almost crashed and burned, came back to life, pivoted. Several times. <laughs> As is usually the case. Yeah. Um, for, for the people who end up listening to this, yeah. they're like, what's this guy about to talk about? Give us the really high-level quick snapshot, and then we'll go through it in-depth chronologically. Okay. 
Yeah, so I mean, essentially, you know, my journey is, um, I've been, you know, I, I think basically I got my heart grabbed by God early on, um, not really knowing who God was other than, you know, the, the creative force that birthed me. Um, and, and I've been chasing that and trying to understand that at a very young age, um, even in high school. Uh, early in high school and didn't have a lot of certainty and I remember going to the University of Kansas and a lot of questions very confused you know went out of state you know grew up in Texas went to the University of Kansas didn't know anyone Mm -hmm. and I spent a lot of time in quiet um you know in between classes you know I had this great little spot that looked out over campus and I would just sit there and kind of ponder and um you know my senior year of college I started reading the bible um, for the first time, because I was going to dismiss Christianity. That was what was familiar to me yeah. um, as far as growing up in Texas. But I saw a lot of gaps in it, and I was just going to dismiss it. My dad, uh, you know, was very anti-religion, and so I was like, yeah, this is, people use a religion as a crutch. Um, and then so this question popped in my head, you know, was before I dismiss this you know, faith that, that is familiar, the story, this narrative that was familiar to me, um, I should read its text huh. before I dismiss it. You hadn't it. before. I, I mean, I'd gone to church occasionally, you know, random um, Sundays, uh, staying at friends' houses whose parents were more religious. Okay. My parents divorced when I was really young. And um, I, when I was at my mom's home, I would go to the Episcopal church with her. Um, when I was in my dad's home, you know, we never went to church. We never, you know, all, all the only religion we ever talked about or saw was disproving um, Christianity or this need for God by watching like the History Channel, okay. or Discovery Channel. So he yeah. was a he was was he an agnostic or an atheist or? A... I mean, he wouldn't even say. He would just, I, I don't even know. I've never asked him because huh. you know, but he was just more like, how can people believe this? Um, was kind of his thing, and okay. his mom. His mom, my grandmother, is like, you know, we call her a prayer warrior. Yeah, and she's you know what you t- what you typically think of as a Southern Texas grandmother um, who loves Jesus. Like that's my grandmother. Okay. <laughs> and so, <clears throat> so anyway, so I was just like, you know what? Here's what my grandmother believes. Here's what my dad believes. Here's what I'm exposed to at university. Um, started reading a lot of Buddhism as well, spending a lot of time in quiet. Um, and so I've got a lot of disruption and also peace that's happening within my spirit. And I'm like, I'm just going to read it, you know, and just see what happens. People say crazy things happen. You know, I'd read Mere Christianity uh, by C.S. Lewis. You know, I was like, this guy was, you know, anti, and then he became a believer, you know. And so I'm like, this is interesting. So I got into it. And I, you know, read most of the Bible and got really confused um, and started feeling this <laughs> sense of urgency, this sense of urgency that I needed to believe something um, and that I was feeling called to, to, to go serve people and love people. Um, and I was supposed to go to medical school, but here I had this like burning desire to like figure this shit out. And I was like, if I go into any sort of graduate school program or if I go straight into like an internship, you know, um, into, you know, corporate America, I'm never going to figure this shit out. Mm. 
you know, I'm going to be one of those 50, 60-year-olds who's still angry and not sure what they believe in. Do, um, do you know where that burning desire to figure things out came from? I mean, it's uh, looking, look, I have a lot more clarity now, you know, on what I believe uh, than I did when I was 20. And, you know, it was 20 years ago. I'm 40. Um, I think, I mean, I think, I think Christ, you know, put that in my heart. Mm. I think, I think, um, everybody has unique, you know, C.S. Lewis talks about in the four loves, he says, the more people you can surround yourself that allow God's love into their life, um, the fuller picture we have of who God is, because each of us has a unique you know, gift or portion or love from God. And for me, I've always, <clears throat> I've just, I mean, just, you know, my, my journey of becoming an Episcopal priest, um, of starting a nonprofit that then, you know, became a business, has become a business, um, you know, getting, a, you know, getting married, getting divorced, now married to a Muslim, um, and you know, I just went to Pakistan for the first time over the Christmas holidays, or right before Christmas holidays, and it's my first time in a Muslim nation. You know, I'm the first of her family uh, that had you know an American come over as part of the family, wow. let alone an, let alone an Episcopal priest. <laughs> um, <laughs> is everybody freaking out, or is everybody pretty cool? I, everybody. And her, you know, both sides of our family, everybody's had their moment of freak out, Mm -hmm. you know, in in their own way. Um, You know, we, we, we bypassed a public freak out by, I, we got engaged and married on the same day, um, uh, last March on, uh, March 23rd on a Thursday, proposed her about 8 a.m. And then we got married (laughs) at two o'clock that afternoon. (laughs) Short, yeah. I mean, short engagements are fantastic, but oh, that, that's got to be a record. Yeah, it was awesome. It was so good. Mm. Yeah. Um, I mean, she was, she was surprised, you know, but so excited. And a lot of it was just because people's stories and their fears get in the way and it would have been yeah. a big, it would have been, we would have been dealing with all of this stuff instead of celebrating the love that, that we shared mm. and when you do that, it forces everybody else to be like, well, shit, this is done. Yeah. Either I make a big stink of it now or I accept it and, and we, we get on the board. And so the families have really moved through. You talk about how people change. It's been wild for me and for my wife, Amal, um, for us to see how our families have let go and embrace these traditions and ways of, of being um, that are unfamiliar um, and just accept and, and be open and learn. Hmm. Um, and it's been really loving. Yeah, I, I, I want to hear more about that. Okay, so post-college, you decide to not go to corporate America. Did you start the nonprofit first? Did you become a priest? Neither. I, um, I bought a one-way ticket and I moved to Africa. Um, Where? And... In Kenya. Okay. Why, yeah. why Kenya? I, why Africa? Why? You know, it was 
really the response is like, why not? It was just kind of like, man, I'm, I've got this burning desire to figure out who God is and where I fit into the world. And, and I really wanted to know what it felt like to help people. Um, and I cast my net really wide. And this was also before like the internet was just starting. I just signed up for my first hotmail account. Um, there was no Facebook, (laughs) Yeah, there was no Facebook, you know, there was no Instagram, there was no blog, there was no blogging. I remember my Um, first hotmail account when you, when you first encountered hotmail was not, was like a little part of you thinking, this sounds a little dirty. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, I was so, I was like, am I doing something wrong here? Yeah. Yeah, and I I think I was an early adopter for my generation, so I think my first Hotmail account was somewhere in my, I don't, it was before I was a teenager, I think. Mm. Um, So there, I might have been right around middle school, I don't remember, but I remember thinking like there was a small party that's like, let's check this out. All right, what's this Hotmail? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I was so anti. I, mean, I didn't get my first like iPhone smartphone for years. I didn't sign up for Facebook for years, and so I was, I've always been that way. Mm-hmm. I've become less that way. Um, but my, one of my close friends from college, David Simpson, he was like, "Dude, you got to get on email before you go to Africa." And he actually signed me up for my first Hotmail account. What was your handle? Was oh, it's just same Zane H Wildman at Hotmail. Very that, boring. He that's didn't get creative. Uh, that's impressive because at that time. You there was a mandate to be creative with your email handle. Yeah, there was no creativity. I don't know why David didn't get creative. That's David's fault. Well, I mean, it probably lasted <laughs> you a lot longer because I think I think a good reason, a good portion of why Hotmail died is because all of us who were originally using it were like, I can't use this handle anymore and look like a grown up. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I signed up for that when I was fifteen. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> I think mine was like green shades or some just ridiculous nice. thing that I thought was cool at the time. <laughs> And everybody else's was too, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. If I would have gone with Josh Chambers, I probably wouldn't have gone to Gmail. But at some point, I was like, I can't. You, I need something solid. else. Yeah, you would have Josh Chambers at Hotmail. Mm-hmm. I could have been somebody. <laughs> All right, so you go off to Kenya. Yeah, uh, so it wasn't. I wasn't. I wasn't going as a priest. Um, I wasn't going as establishing a nonprofit. It really was a journey. I mean, I remember a friend gave me the book, The Alchemist. Oh um, yeah right before I left. And so I read that while I was in Kenya and, um, what, what that book do to you? Did that book work on you or were you like, what the oh heck gosh, is this? It worked on me like crazy, you know, just because, um, it talks about living your personal legend and, and I, I didn't identify that that's what I was doing a year before, but now here I am in Africa, you know, white kid, middle-class, you know, Texas guy, and I'm like, I'm in the middle of Africa. I'm in Kenya. Um, I'm a minority for the first time. I'm trying to discover who God is. Um, I'm hanging out with people that are living in mud huts that sleep on animal skin rugs. Um, you know, people are moving at a slow, slow pace, eating very basic foods. I'm like, everything is unfamiliar and foreign and... I'm I'm like, I'm on fire and, and I can't, you know, I can't talk. There was no cell phones, right? So you're not picking up the phone and talking to mom. You're not texting your friends with a photo and being like, dude, you know, you're not taking a story and being like epic first day in Kenya. You know, you're Mm -hmm. just like, I'm in Kenya and no one can connect to me. I think I talked to my family less than 10 times that whole first year. 
you know, like my mom, if she wanted to talk to me, you know, we had to, she would call into the operator and they had like the, the switchboard, you know, and she would have to, you know, be batched in and then like transferred to my house and it costs like crazy amount of money. Wow. So you just, you just, as I was reading The Alchemist and I'm reading about this, I'm like, man, I'm, I'm out here, you know, and I took a huge leap um, at a very young age to be by myself. Logistics, logistics wise, Zane, you're, uh, did you have housing and everything lined up? Did you join a nonprofit just so you didn't show up and yeah, so I, 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 I cast the net wide. I ended up going with a group called Africa Inland Mission. Um, they, you know, this couple, uh, Jim and Kathy Long, picked me up from the airport. Um, and I just trusted that they would be there, you know, because I didn't even talk to them before I left. And they, you know, that's just the, also the way people did things back then. Yep. <laughs> and yeah, and they were an hour late and I just hung out at the airport and you know, they finally showed up and then I had a house. I didn't know what my housing would be like. Um, and there were no websites to check it out beforehand. And so I just showed up in Africa. They picked me up at the airport. We drove two hours and I had this little house and it was in this compound. Um, and it was just right outside your doorstep. I mean, it was Africa. What were you doing while you were there? So I taught uh, at a school. I taught uh, high school French. Okay. Um, I worked in a med at the hospital there, Kajabi Hospital. Um, Assisted in in the the hospital there. It's kind of like a med tech. Um, And then I ended up, they found out I played basketball. I ended up coaching high school basketball at the local school. Um, but the, 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 the moment that everything changed for me was when I went down with a group of doctors and nurses to down 2000 feet, you drop straight down into the Rift Valley. And, um, we went to this orphanage and this guy, Jeremiah, uh, who's a local pastor and running an orphanage for 140 kids. Um, that was a moment that everything changed for me. And it was just one of those moments that you see in a movie or you read in a book where two characters connect and there's just this connection, you know, that occurs and you're like, man, I, I got to come back down and figure out why you're so happy. And you're, and you got carnage all around you. This town is impoverished. These kids are impoverished. You know, um, there are like three toilets. And when I say toilets, just holes in the ground and a shack built around it for 140 kids. I'm like, and this is what you're doing every day, yet you're, you seem happier than anyone I've ever met in the States. Um, and so I arranged to go down by myself uh, a few weeks after that. I hadn't traveled by myself in Africa yet. I go down there, and I'm a 23-year-old kid, huh. and I sit across the desk from him. Jeremiah was 33 at the time, married, had three kids of his own, as plus the orphans. And I was just like, man, look, you know, I'm, uh, he's like, what are you wanting to do? You know, I'm like, I want to help you. You know, it looked like you need help. And he's like, he starts laughing. He's like, I need, I need a lot of help. He's <laughs> like, you know, I'm sure in his mind, he's like, you're a kid. Like, <laughs> how are you going to help me? And I'm like, man, I don't know. All, all I know is that my heart is on fire. Uh, I'm, I bought a one-way ticket. I don't know how long I'm going to live here in Africa. Um, but I want to do something and I want to do something 
that serves God while I figure out what I believe in about God. And I was like, why don't we do something together? And he was like, um, all right, what are, you, you know, what are we going to start with? And I said, well, I don't know, let's just have lunch. And so we started having lunch. I'd come down every, because it was about an hour drive, this dirt road okay. down. And uh, we had lunch every Thursday for a year. And um, that just changed everything, man. What, like, uh, what was con- it about con- him? And what, what happened when, when you guys were having these conversations? And did that happiness turn out to be real and authentic? Oh, was it, I mean, was it what I just talked about? to him before, I, before we started this podcast, man. I was just on the phone with him. Um, and, you know, we've been doing this together now for almost eight. This will be our 18th year working together. And, um, yeah, he's 50 now and I'm 40 and, uh, it's, you know, we met when I was 20 something, he was 30 something. And yeah, it was very real. And we've seen each other go through all these changes in our lives and we've had people love us. We've had people leave us. We've had people die. Um, we've gone through so many changes in the company. Um, and that dude's ability to carry stress with a smile and a purity of heart is like nobody I've ever met. Wow. Yeah. So it was, it was very real then and it's still very real now. So what's happening while you guys are having these, these lunches, uh, you're reading the alchemist, you're starting to pursue a faith more intentionally and you're having conversations and what, what changes for you during those, that year with Jeremiah, Jeremiah, is that right? Yeah, Jeremiah. Um, well, Jesus became very real. So my faith transitioned from, you know, here's this God that I've felt super close to for since childhood, you know, and I didn't really have a necessarily like a flesh and bones on this God. It was just this deep connection. And then I read the Bible and God now is starting to have some characters. There's some narration you know to to who god is um but i still was skeptical you know and i'd read a lot of buddhism and so there's also this absence um and lack of attachment that is also somewhere inside of me about god um and then there's just this curiosity of who jesus is and not the jesus that i had been preached about when i would occasionally go to church you know back home but this Jesus that I'm seeing Kenyans who are poor are really in deep connection to. And, and I'm reading the Beatitudes, you know, blessed are the poor. And now here I'm hanging out with like the poor. I'm not at a, at a food shelter handing out canned goods. Like I'm, these people are now my friends. They're loving me. I'm loving them. I'm not on a three week mission trip. I'm living here. And, um, I'm, I'm now, I'm, I'm, I've, you know, months, months into this thing, like seven months in, I'm, you know, it, I knew it became real when I'm starting to hear gossip about doc, you know, some of the doctors who come down or the nurses or something that, you know, it's like we've become real, right? There's, there's no pretense. And, um, Nothing, yeah, nothing man, says we've established something here, like complaining about other human beings. <laughs> yeah, completely, completely, man. I mean, that's just real, you know? And uh, we start just to show our, our, our human nature and connecting on not the good stuff, but the, even the bad stuff. 
And I think that was, you know, those lunches um, became just so, so real for me, um, bouncing these questions off with Jeremiah, you know? I mean, we went into people, I'll never forget the most difficult, one of the most difficult encounters I've ever had even to this day. Um, Jeremiah was sharing with me that one of his parishioners in his church, their daughter, Beatrice, who was, I want to say she was, um, she's like 10 years old, maybe, if even 10. Um, but the grandmother, who was a, her mom had died. And so Beatrice's grandmother, she lived with her grandmother, and Beatrice had like three other kids, or three other siblings. And her grandmother had to go out in the evening to take care of the, what they call a shamba, the garden, because zebras um, and some of the gazelles and stuff were coming in in the evening and eating their fruits and vegetables. So she was gone out in the shamba, which was a ways away from town. And um, in the evening, about uh, seven guys came and broke into their home and took turns raping Beatrice for like an hour. Oh my gosh. And Jeremiah's telling me this over lunch the following, you know, like a couple of days after it happened. And you're just catching up on what's going on in my life and here's what's going on in his life. And I'm like, holy shit, man. Like that's the kind of stuff you hear in the Bible happening, right? And like here I am in Africa with Jeremiah and we're talking about this over lunch and I'm just like, I, have you gone to the home? He's like, no, I'm going tomorrow and I'm like I can I come with you mm. and I just wanted to see I was so hungry it wasn't just hunger to know who God is it was a hunger to be connected with raw humanity you know we're so domesticated here in the states and everything is far away you know and things you complain about majority of us things that we, myself too you know it's it's like you know when we first got on here, I was talking about Amal want me to go check out the office at 8 o'clock this mm-hmm. morning, and I was complaining about that, mm-hmm. right? Like the stuff we complain about. And I wanted to get into this real stuff, you know? And I'll never forget walking into that shack, you know, that home the next day. And she wouldn't even get near Jeremiah and me because we were men. And she couldn't even walk because, you know, oh, they so raped awful. her for an hour. And so it wasn't like, uh, you know, that trip wasn't like what you think of as a person, you know, from today's world where we go, you hear about people going on a trip to Africa for 10 days and they're like, they were the happiest people I've ever met. Why can't we just be happier, you know? And it's like, it wasn't like that. It was, these people are dealing with life on a level, whether it's pain or joy, that I had never seen, you know, and, and it just blew my heart wide open. Um, and Jesus walked into it in a really powerful way. And Jeremiah walked into my heart in a very powerful way. And I would say that's exactly where I am to this day. It's like, I'm walking with Jeremiah, I'm walking with Jesus and we're trying to figure it all out. How did you process that? experience over the years i mean i'm hearing it for the first time and i'm it that's traumatic that's yeah you just want to throw up yeah yeah no i mean that was just one of them that was just that was just one of them josh i mean there was a lot of other 
crazy stories. Um, the way I process it is, uh, you know, bad shit happens and, and, and life in you know, the world is broken. Um, and I think, you know, the way I reconcile it with my faith is God gives us free will and we all make choices every day and how we participate in the brokenness of the world and, and where God wants us to be uh, vessels of healing and love. And, you know, majority of us fall short of, of doing that. Um, we actually participate a lot of times in the brokenness. I mean, I just went on a six-week journey with my wife across Kenya, Pakistan, and Europe over the holidays, and I got, she saw the worst of me for about 10 days of that trip. I wasn't participating in the healing of the world. I was participating <laughs> in, the, in the brokenness, you know, and living in into my self-centeredness and my fear um, rather than into my abundance and my love. And, and that's how I reconcile it. People, people, those seven men who raped her, who knows what their story was? Who knows what happened to them? as children. Chances are they had horrific things happen to them. You know, chances are they've been unemployed for their whole, you know, teenage and early adult life. They were never caught. Who knows how old they were? And I'm not making excuses for them. I just, you know, it's easy to demonize people um, when you don't know their full story, you know, and I think that's... um, that's just part of the difficulty that we all live into. And, and it doesn't make me question or doubt God. It makes me, if anything, want to work even harder to, to do my part and to get better people around me so we can do it at a larger scale. All right, rough transition. You are yeah. in Africa. You're there for uh, how many years? And then um, Episcopal priest, married, divorced, remarried, new business, go. Yep, go. So uh, real quickly, I lived in Kenya. That first trip was for just over a year. Um, I came back and wanted to know more about God. Like I wanted to study. And so I I ended up, that part of the journey led me, you know, to Montana for a short period of time where I studied the Bible that then led me back to Kansas to work in a church where I met my previous wife um, and met the, you know, got connected with the bishop of the Episcopal Church there in Kansas, and I entered the process to become a priest. Um, that was 2004, and I ended up um, <clears throat> getting married in 2004, and then joined seminary here in Austin. Um, was in seminary for, for a year here, then my uh, ex-wife and I moved to Africa, to Kenya, and went to seminary there for a year. Um, came back, finished seminary in Austin, and then became a priest and lived in California and San Jose for, for a few years. And that's about the time that I started, you know, that process of being in seminary is when I started the nonprofit, was running the nonprofit. So, you know, at that time I'm juggling seminary, I'm, I'm running this nonprofit, um, trying to figure out what it is that we were going to do in Kenya that could really, our whole thing was like sustainable development. Like what is it that we're doing now that's setting people up to be empowered to take ownership of their own lives so that that change that we're helping, 
you know, create in the immediate is a lasting change that they're carrying through for their own lives, you know, 30 years from now. And so um, after California, my ex-wife and I moved, we got enough funding to go full-time with the nonprofit. So like the first five to seven years, I did it on the side. I was being paid as a priest and I was doing, you know, Ubuntu, which is our nonprofit. I was running Ubuntu on the side and um, we moved to back to Austin. I took it on full-time. And that's when the mar- my previous marriage started breaking down, um, started having more fights, and uh, Ubuntu got a partnership with Whole Foods Market right around that time. And that was really when everything changed in regards to the transition of the nonprofit becoming more of a business. Yeah, so what, um, started, what was it, and then what did it become? Yeah, so it was, it was just the change that I saw. It's like, if we're really talking about sustainability, um, we're really talking about empowerment, then you don't want people to be getting handouts. You know, you want them to be uh, creating their own livelihood. And so you really want to become, you want to become less of Santa Claus having fundraisers and then dumping a bag of goodies back into Kenya. Is that what you, you know, guys you have been doing more or less? Yeah, more or less because we're organizing mission trips to Kenya. We're bringing doctors and nurses over. And, um, you know, we were, start, we, were, we were planting a bunch of trees, doing environmental work. Uh, we were running a school for children with special needs. And so that was just like a constant burn, which is, a, you know, don't get me wrong. There's a need for charity. Not everything can be a business. I mean, children who are born with cerebral palsy and Down syndrome and severe autism, you know, there's not really a a path for them yet to be able to sustain a livelihood, right? And so when I, when we struck up a partnership with Whole Foods, um, because these, basically the moms, the original moms of the children that were in our special needs school, they wanted a job and they were talking, I would never really thought about creating a job for these women. And they said, I was like, what do y'all want to do? And they said, we'd love to learn how to sew. And I was like, well, shit, I don't know how to sew, but I know somebody who does. And it was this woman, Denise Diaz, who was connected to this organization called the American Sewing Guild. And next thing I knew, we had the American Sewing Guild sending teams of seamstresses to Kenya for three years in a row. And then the next thing I know, we're, I'm talking to Whole Foods Market about reusable canvas coffee sleeves instead of the cardboard sleeves that everybody throws away. I see. And the next thing I know, we're going from 100% donated revenue with no earned, you know, revenue coming in to we're like at a 50-50 hybrid model. We've got 50% donations. We've got 50% revenue that we're generating through business. So did we skip the the crash and almost crash and burn part, or is that coming, Zane? Oh, that was right in there. I mean – the the two thousand I mean there's honestly there's there's been like three almost crash and burns for the company. Um but that 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 transition moment of I mean I can remember our our bank account um had like maybe five thousand dollars in it and our burn rate at that time was you know twenty five thousand dollars a month. And I was in conversations with Whole Foods Market and um they hadn't pulled the trigger yet to to do the deal 
and of course Whole Foods were just a small little fish. They're not feeling yeah, any urgency right. to pull that trigger. But then when they pulled that trigger, it was just like it was more money than we had ever raised it at a at a fundraiser. And and uh, and not only that, more importantly, it gave these women a job to wake up to every day for like the next couple of months. And they felt this sense of empowerment. And that's what got me hungry. It's like being back in Kenya, seeing these women at their sewing machines, um, smiling, excited, you know, feeling productive. I'm like, more of this. And I'm looking at Jeremiah and he's like, yes, more of this. Mm. And I'm like, how do we do this? So during, um, during this time where you're, you're, you're uh, $20,000 short of that month's burn rate, are you kind of like, hey, it'll work out? Or are you freaking out? Are you somewhere in the middle? What's this doing to you as you... You know, like, well, that's, you know, the right? This is how we change. I was so... My... I have always had a, an unhealthy relationship with money. And, and my unhealthy relationship with money has not been I want a lot. My unhealthy relationship as a priest is money's not a good thing. I see. Um, and so I'll just make enough to do enough good and it will come through somehow, um, which is not wise, right? And, and so when I was in that situation, I'm just like, man, this shit's going to work out, you know? <laughs> yeah, I'm, like, I'm like, I'm not sure how it's going to work out, but it's going to work out. Uh, are there people on your team that are like, this isn't, this isn't going well. Well, no, at that time, I mean, we were such a, a scrappy crew. I mean, it was like two of us here in the States. Um, and we had a board member who's still on our board, Chris Munson, who's a CFO here. And, and he was a little stressed, um, but he was also not, he was just kind of getting his feet wet into who we were. So he was like, I mean, if this thing, I mean, if Zane's feeling like everything's okay i guess i guess this thing just isn't gonna take off and were you genuinely we feeling didn't have, like everything is okay or was that the veneer that no i mean i'm i'm stressed i'm stressed but it's interesting it was people who are ignorant of of aspects of their lives don't feel stress in those areas where they're ignorant right and and i was ignorant on cash flow I was ignorant on being responsible financially, and so I'm. I'm. I was just what every donor wants to wants to hear. Yeah. Well, I mean, man, that's who I was. I was a passionate leader, like a. You know, I was a priest. I mean, most priests mm-hmm. do not run good businesses. Right. Most priests, you know, it's like you don't hire a priest at a church majority of the time because they're great financially. Um, you hire priests because they're healers. Yeah. They're connected to our spirits, our souls, our flesh, you know, and, and how to live responsibly and lovingly through all of that. And it's a very different skill set, you know, how I was trained as a priest than managing a nonprofit. Did you then get your and, ass handed to you or, or was it a slow and steady shift? Oh, I got my ass handed. No, I got my ass handed By to Whole me. Foods or just that whole deal or what? That whole, that whole, that whole thing. And, and, and at that, you know, you flash forward a couple years after that. So we're going now from 2012, 2011, 2012 to 2014. And we're back in a similar situation financially. And I'm going through a divorce. I see. Um, and that was probably like one of the darkest moments for me. And it popped in my mind, 
you know, because I'm all about empowering others. I'm about empowering these women that work for us in Kenya, and Jeremiah and I are about empowering one another. And Jeremiah was going through some financial issues personally as well. And I'm sitting there and I'm talking to Jeremiah and I'm like, man, we got to figure this shit out. I'm like, this is a pattern. This is a cycle where we are cash flow positive and like we're raining down, you know, opportunities. And then we're like months later, we're in like, holy shit, where all that money go? Like, well, let's go get another order. Let's go get some more donations. And, um, and we were just, our burn rate was too high. Um, That's also exhausting after a while, right? Very exhausting, and and I'm dealing with my own personal exhaustion of of you know the divorce, and it just popped in my mind. You know, you can only give someone something that you have, right? So it's hard to love somebody. You know, that's why Jesus says, "Love your neighbor as yourself." You know, like you got to love yourself truly before you can truly love someone else self selflessly. Um, you know, and it's like I. I can't really house anybody with anything if I don't have shelter. Um, I can't provide people financial empowerment if I'm being irresponsible financially and, or just ignorant. I wouldn't even say it was necessarily irresponsibility. I wasn't spending it irresponsibly. I was just not being, my attention wasn't on that part of the business. And, and that's you know what I actually, I just decided every day I'm going to check my personal bank account and I'm going to check the company's bank account every day. And at that time, the guy who was running our, who was kind of our finance director, he transitioned out. And so I decided instead of replacing him, I'm going to take that role on for a temporary period of time and just get an understanding of being more responsible financially and understanding what our burn rate was, you know, how our sales and our income is coming in and when. Um, And it was just leaning into that part of the business. You know, and that's for this, for, for Ubuntu to thrive, I can't be doing that on a daily basis, long-term, because I need to be doing the vision. I need to be, you know, building the relationships and selling. Um, but that moment of just like quieting things down and leaning into the financial part of the company was a massive change for me and Jeremiah, you know, to the point where my conversation with Jeremiah this morning um, started with him laughing and saying, man, we just had like the shortest recap of, of a month ever. I'm like, really? He's like, yeah, we just recapped January and everybody reported on their sales targets for January and how, if they, you know, achieved them or didn't. And if they didn't, how far they were from that. And people are owning their part of the business. And I'm like, dude, how crazy is that, bro? He's like, man, I've never been more excited to do what we're doing now. You know, and, and I look at the Jeremiah and Zane, you know, that met 17 years ago. We were never talking about money. We were talking about purpose. We were talking about service. We were talking about love. We were talking about evil and goodness. You know, and then you look at who we were, you know, 10 years ago. We were like, holy shit there's this thing called business and it's like, we're participating in it now. How do I, there, there was a meeting we, we walked out of and we were in the meeting and, and Jeremiah in the meeting, the person was talking about what we've accomplished on the business side. And Jeremiah was laughing in the meeting and he said, man, I'm, I'm not a businessman. I don't know how we're doing it. And we walked out of the meeting and I punched him in the shoulder and I said, dude, you got to stop saying that. 
I was like, our words are powerful. You are a businessman. Mm-hmm. I was like, I am a businessman. Like, we're becoming <laughs> businessmen. I was like, <laughs> I was like, I just picture these two young guys being like, guys, no, really, we're businessmen. Yeah, I know. I was like, and I was like, I was like, dude, we are. And I said in that same sense, like, and we're also in politics. I was like, we are the largest employer in a town of sixty thousand people. I was like, we are, we are, we are selling product all over the world. You know, to the largest organic food store in the world. You know, and I'm like, we got to own this, even though it scares the shit out of us. And that was the thing. It scared two guys who felt who had come to some level of peace at being leaders of faith to take on the responsibility of being businessmen. Well, it's funny, um, Zane, because it, well, it's not funny, but this isn't an uncommon pattern. However, mm. I think what is an uncommon pattern is for that transition to happen successfully. Because mm. oftentimes that transition, in my experience, has been from the nonprofit to the business side or from the visionary leader to the um, more tactical leader usually doesn't go very well. It usually ends up with the visionary leader disempowering everyone on the team, confusing the shit out of everyone, never meeting a deadline and then getting mad at everybody. Yeah. Running the business into the ground either through poor use of money or poor use of uh, their team. But it sounds like yeah. you guys were able to effectively transition from not just being visionaries, but actually running operations. Yeah. I mean, I would say we're, I mean, honestly, Josh, we're, we're in the process of it. I mean, it's like, you know, we still have moments where cash flow is tight. Um, but what we have, I would say what we have done, and this is, you know, what Jer- I think probably one of the most important things that Jeremiah and I have done is... Um, We've fueled the company with this love. You know, we both have a love for Jesus, um, and that kind of fuels how we lead. And we lead by serving. Um, and, and we also have gotten, we've held each other very much accountable, and we're very much mirrors to one another to the point where it's like, dude, your ego's getting in your way. No, your ego's getting in your way. No, your um, ego's getting in your no, way. Your ego. And, <laughs> and, and we've like really sharpened each other and we have such a respect for one another. And what that has done is opened it up to the company to where we've got people who know how to run great businesses around us now. That helps. And we've got people who, who, have, who have run foundations, you know, have been a part of growing foundations. Um, long, you know, as long as, or if not longer than Ubuntu has been around. Um, and we've got incredible skilled people in the fashion industry, um, in the retail industry, um, on our board now. Um, and you know, this past week we were just in San Francisco and our board meeting was at the headquarters of Zazzle. Um, and Jeff Beaver, you know, who runs that company founded Zazzle with his brother, um, his dad, you know, it's a massive business. I mean, their offices are in the original Pixar offices, and that's where we had our board meeting. And it's like, you can only take yourself so far. I mean, we're all interdependent. We need one another. And what we've, what Jeremiah and I have done is kind of recognize where we shall we fall short, and we know we needed to grow this and scale this as a, as a business. So know your limitations and get business people on board um, to grow you. You know, and that's, I think that's where a difference from people who have fallen short, as you were yeah. saying, is more the more typical story. Um, 
we've got the, we finally do, and we always talk about it as a bus, you know, and getting the wrong people off the bus, get the right people on the bus and the right people in the right seats. Um, the last two years have been a ton of work getting the wrong people off and getting the right people on. And this is the first year I can honestly say um, that the bus is like solid. That's great. Yeah, and it feels great. So you, um, let's talk about another slightly rough transition, but let's talk about uh, as comfortable as you are, as much as you do or don't want to share. Yeah. The non-business personal side of life, you remarry someone who doesn't share your same faith, which is a fairly uncommon thing to do in both of your faith communities. So if you wouldn't mind walking through um, what you can of the first marriage and how it's impact, how it impacted you and, and caused you to change. And then, uh, how your faith evolved, um, to allow for you and your wife, your current wife to be married to one another, sharing different religions. Yeah, man. I mean, I'm, I'm an open book. Um, you know, my first, wife, Natalie, um, you know, we met, she was, we we were both young. She was really young. She was 22 when we got married. I was 27. Um, you know, but we were married for a decade, you know, and she walked the journey with me of becoming a priest. She walked the journey with me of transitioning Ubuntu from this, you know, bleeding heart nonprofit to this hybrid, you know, social enterprise. Um, But most importantly, I would say that, you know, Natalie helped me give my body back to myself. Um, I was molested, you know, when I was five years old um, by by a cousin. And it was, you know, you don't realize when those things happen to you at that age, how it's affecting you until you're older. And a lot of my actual... um, religious, per, you know, faith construct, like how I built this life of purity around myself. I didn't realize it at the time, but I was doing it to purify the filthiness that I felt about my own flesh, you know, and a lot of that was because I, I saw myself as dirty because I can remember being five years old and this happening to me and I can remember feeling dirty. I'm so sorry. That this was not natural, awful, right? Yeah. And, um, I went through tons of therapy on it and, you know, as a kid you did or as an adult? No, 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 no. As a kid, it didn't even come out that this happened until I was the year, until the year that I left for Africa for the first time. So I, this happened to me when I was, you know, a kid. Um, and then it didn't come out into the family until I was 22, um, and I can remember being in Africa. I mean, you know, there's no TV. That whole year I lived in Africa, no TV, you know, no laptop, no computer, um, no phone. And so your evenings are really quiet, you know, and I mean, I would make a fire and I'd listen, I'd write, I'd read. And I did that for over a year, that, you know, first year in Africa. And I remember sitting a lot of nights thinking about uh, how, I, you know, asking God, okay, you know, how have I been, how is this? changed me like how like am I angry am I furious do I hate myself do am I am I am am I questioning my sexuality Mm -hmm. you know like will I will I molest somebody like I'm asking all these things that my brain is trying to like reconcile and 
Um, and then I met, I met, you know, Natalie, um, three years after that. And, uh, man, I mean, she went through a lot of darkness with Mm me, you know, and, 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 and she definitely helped give me my body back to myself and, and heal, walk through that healing process to where I didn't see where I was able to love Jesus. Um, and really sit with what it means for God to come into our flesh, to show us that our flesh is good and beautiful um, and not dirty, um, not naughty. Um, and she helped walk through all that with me. And you know, the marriage really broke down um, due to my kind of uh, pushing her away. She wanted to be a part of Ubuntu. And I had grown up with a dad who... You know, he had told my stepmom, go do your own thing. Everybody needs their own passion. Everybody needs their own thing that they wake up to and they get fired up about life. And you know, here is this, you know, my wife at that time, and she wanted to be a part of this. I'm like, go do your own thing, you know. You need to be excited. I've, I'm becoming a priest. I'm running this nonprofit. Like, do your own thing. And that was really the beginning of kind of us parting ways. Mm. I didn't realize it at the time. I thought I was helping her because she was young and I'm like, yeah. this is good for you. Go have your own life. Um, and then this, the, the kind of the nail in the coffin, which we didn't realize at the time, you know, she say, she was an opera singer and she sang in the choir at the church and we were watching each other use our gifts to serve a community every week. And then we came back here to Austin and I started doing Ubuntu full-time and wasn't in the church, and she went off and started doing acting, and we weren't participating in each other's lives anymore. Mm-hmm. And, and we weren't participating in utilizing our marriage to serve others. You know, it was very much just kind of do our own thing and come back at the end of the day and unpack it a little bit, but really not having a sense of connection to what each other was doing. Um, <clears throat> and so that was how it ended, honestly. She moved to L.A., and... Um, and I stayed in Austin, and, and you know, it just kind of broke apart. And then I went through a period of being single and, and discovering Tinder and, and Bumble and mm. all this crazy so, swiping So now you adopted right technology. <laughs> now I adopted technology, and I'm like, what the hell is this? Yeah, you know, right. <laughs> And uh, fumbling my way through that. And then I met Amal through one of our board members, a guy named Jim McDermott, who'd been on the board for a number of years and great guy. And he and Amal knew each other from, from college. And uh, How many years between then, Zane? Three years. Okay. Three yeah. years before meeting. And yeah. had you been going yeah. through? You... Oh, no, we, I, we actually met, while, you know, we met early, early on, but I didn't even think about her as right. somebody I would ever date because I had been married. And, yeah. Um, but it was about a year and a half after the divorce that we started dating. And it was about a year and a half after that that we got married. And you, you'd mentioned, uh, I think you had mentioned therapy. Was this happening while you and Natalie were together post, during, did I mistake? Uh, what, did you say therapy, you had been doing therapy? I had done, yeah, it was, it was before Natalie and I got married is when I started going to therapy Right before, like right when I kind of started, I started meeting and dating Natalie, I started going to okay. therapy. And, and that's when it kind of, because I, you know, that's kind of when like it just all blew up for me. Hmm. Um, and 
<clears throat> and like I came face to face with how affected I was by being molested. Mm-hmm. Um, how many years? Does, how many it, years does that take, Zane? And I think it's different for everybody. But how many years does that take for uh, the um, the triggering and the really disruptive emotional and mental um, activations. How many years does that take before Um, that chills out for you? I think you got to get into it. And I think it's different for everybody. I mean, for me, it was super um, intense uh, for about two years. And then, you know, you're you're just building new stories in your mind, Mm -hmm. you know, and that, that just takes time. And, um, you got to build up, you know, you're just, you're everything inside of you says, this is wrong. This is bad. I'm bad. She's bad. This is naughty. Um, and it takes repeatedly being in a space that's safe and loving that you can move through that. And then after that, it comes time to just kind of own that new story and, and learn to live into it healthfully. You know, it's like if you're, if you're underground, you're buried under, you're kind of drowning. It takes time to realize that you're not pulling that person who's trying to bring you up out of the water. Like you're not pulling them down. You let them bring you up. And then it takes time to actually figure out what it's like to get back on level ground. And all of those are phases. Yeah. I think that and, uh, part of the question is coming from, I I don't think um, many of us who haven't experienced or walked with someone who's experienced some kind of traumatic event like that don't realize how long the healing takes. It's always with you. It's always with you. You know, I mean... But even you're saying to get out of that feeling of drowning, that's two years. That's not... That that took me, yeah, that took me, that took me two years. And then every year after that, you know, it's just a, it's a calming, mm-hmm. you know, you start to just get more calm and more comfortable with yourself. Um, and the church doesn't do a good job talking about the beauty of sexuality um, and being at peace, even with or without, even without being molested, right? The church doesn't do a very good job talking about being at peace with our own bodies and participating in their natural desires in a healthy way. And, and so as a priest, you know, that's something, you know, as a priest who's now single and on Tinder, <laughs> you know, who, <laughs> who was empowering women and children in Africa, um, my profile on Tinder was pretty sick. <laughs> uh, but I'm... <laughs> like it's just it's it's did you uh, wear your collar for your tinder pic oh totally <laughs> yeah <laughs> if i did I mean, people would just think it was like a halloween costume the first time i ever wore my collar as a priest in san jose um on halloween people all thought i was it was a halloween Are you costume. guys no guys this is real i'm serious yeah no this is real i swear no i'm trained okay so yeah. you meet you meet amal you um you eventually get married, but did you have to, uh, what strain of Christianity had you bought into at this point? 
Did it require any um, finagling or rejiggering of your theology what, to be able to marry a Muslim? I mean, what, 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 uh, you know, the power of, of Christ working in my life in my relationship with Amul in the beginning, I mean, I like to control things. I like to predict and be able to know how I can manipulate something to the end that's going to accomplish what I know it needs to accomplish. And, and I had done that in my previous marriage and, and wasn't good. Um, and the power of God in, at work in my relationship with Amul in the beginning was I wasn't caught up in who she became in her faith. Like, we would have conversations in the beginning, and she would say to me, you know, I just don't know if I, if I identify with Islam. You know, my parents met. It was arranged marriage. They grew up in Pakistan. You know, she's a first-generation, um, you know, migrant here in, in, in America um, and grew up in Texas. And we would have these conversations, and the old me would have been like, well, let me show you the way. Right. And, and, and the new me was more asking her other questions. What is it that you're questioning, or what is it that your heart is, is kind of what sets you up on fire? You know, what, what, are in, what kind of answers are you hoping to get and why? And, and then I got out of the way, you know, because she said that she wanted to meet with, um, with a priest. She's really funny. I mean, she's a passionate, very vocal person. And she was like, I mean, the way this went down was, I need to go to confession. I need to meet with a priest. And I'm like, and I'm like, what do you mean? We have been dating for a couple of months. I'm like, I mean, you like, you have a lot on your heart. You just need to get it out. And she's like, she's like, yeah, but she's like, I also have a lot of questions. I'm like, oh, so you want a conversation? She's like, yeah, I want a conversation. I was like, well, then you don't really want to go to confession. You just want spiritual counsel. I was like, I can introduce you to, you know, some friends of mine that are priests and would be open to have that conversation. And she ended up going to see my buddy who is an Episcopal priest in town, um, who's a very open, you know, loving person. And it just so happened that it was right before Ash Wednesday and their Lenten study was interfaith dialogue between Muslims and Christians. Oh, interesting. And crazy. Yeah, that is crazy. And, and, um, and so for me, I think the, real power was just that I was, and still am. I mean, Amul, if she were on this right now, she would say she's not quite sure, you know, what she would say her religion is. She, she identifies with Islam because that's where she grew up and how she grew up. Um, she's very curious about Jesus because um, she, what she's learned about Jesus has really set her heart at peace. Um, and has experienced a lot of acceptance in her own life, um, but she's not quite sure where she is. And and the thing that's amazing for me, being someone who needs to be certain so much of my life, is how comfortable I am with yeah. that, and that how trusting I am, um, and how massive God is. You that's know? Uh, and, remarkable that you're able, both of you, to be in an intimate relationship and not need to transition the other one from one set of beliefs to your own set of beliefs. Yeah. Yeah, it's been remarkable because she's more open that way. It's not as crazy for her. It's really crazy for me. Um, she's, she's just more, she can flow more easily than I can. Mm. Um, what is remarkable is, I mean, her family isn't as, as 
open as she is, and they're very committed to Islam and very beautiful, their, their spirituality, their faith. What's been amazing is those conversations, you know, and, and what's been wild is seeing how much pre-programmed bullshit that I have in my head growing up as an American about people from Pakistan and about is people who are Muslim. Mm-hmm. And now here I am, you know, multiple trips, you know, in her family's home, you know, almost childhood home. And like her mom and I just have a hilarious rapport. You know, we make fun of each other about all kinds of shit. And um, her dad and I are, you know, deep respect for one another. And my mom, my mom and my stepdad who are, you know, diehard, you know, Christians, I mean, they took Amal's dad out for dinner for his 80th birthday because we were all in Pakistan, you know? Wow. And, yeah, that's that's the stuff that's just like, wow. Yeah, that is wow. You know, yeah, yeah. Well, we are, we're well over, I think, even with the technical difficulties, an hour. And there's no <laughs> great way to end a conversation ever like this. I could just keep yeah, talking yeah. to you for another couple hours. But what do you yeah. have going on right now? And, and any parting words about just your own journey and change and people who might be listening to you and relating to you? Yeah, I think, um, you know, someone told me when the divorce happened, two, two, two quick stories. One is when a thunderstorm is coming over a hill, a herd of cattle will try to outrun it and go around it. Um, a herd of bison will go straight into it. And it's actually the faster way is actually go into the, whether that's darkness, whether that's pain, you know, from the divorce or molestation or limitations, perceived limitations of yourself. You know, I think just encouraging people to get into it. You know, I mean, we're not meant to feel happy and warm fuzzies all the time. Like the true reality of human, our humanity and being human is to, to make peace with all of our emotions, you know, and make peace with our stories. Um, And the only way to do that is to get into it and not view those things as bad, you know? I mean, yeah, happiness feels better than sadness, but it's not better. You know, it's not truly better. I mean, we need to know our sadness and befriend our sadness and understand what it's trying to tell us, you know? What are our fears trying to tell us? Um, The other advice was thin space and thick space. And a friend of mine said, life is full of these thick spaces. You know, you, you are in high school, you're in your parents' home, you move out, either get a job or you're in college, it's another thick space. You get married, you know, that's another thick space. You have kids. And it's usually tragedy that creates thin spaces. And thin spaces are gifts, you know, because people give you space when this tragedy happens, whether it's a divorce or the loss of a child or a massive accident, Um, and take full advantage of those thin spaces, you know, because I look back at those times in my life that were dark and painful, and those are those thin spaces, and that's when you learn the most about who you are and who your friends are and how they're there for you um, and who God is for you and how God shows up for you or doesn't, you know, um, and, and how you lean into God or you don't, you know, is God the God that you want only when things are good 
you know, or is God there with you? And how's your relationship with God when things go to shit? You know, and, and, and those you find, you discover those things in those thin spaces. And it, and it makes the thick spaces um, of life fuller. You know, I look at my relationship, my marriage with Amal now, and the degree of fullness that that has. Not that my marriage with Natalie was not. Um, but man, I am so grateful for the pain and the discovery and the way I'm able to show up for Amal and the human that I am to her family. Um, and that's because I went into that thin space and I went into that thunderstorm and, and, um, and listened to it and learned from it. Um, and I think, you know, that's really what I would say if anyone's listening, like the most, you know, kind of the advice I would give because that's where, that's where we really change and discover who we are. Thanks, Andy. Yeah, good man. stuff. Thanks, Josh.